Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode eight of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. And today I'll be speaking with Dr. Terry Bacow about common triggers for anxiety, as well as science-informed strategies for skillfully coping with these triggers and changing the way in which we view and experience anxiety. Dr. Terry Bacow is a licensed clinical psychologist and a member of the clinical faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She has a private practice in New York City and specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy for anxiety and mood disorders, ADHD, life transitions, maternal mental health, and parenting. In addition, Dr. Bacow authored the book, Goodbye Anxiety, a guided journal for overcoming worry, which will be available for purchase in December of this year. And as you may have already noticed, I tweaked the title of Dr. Bacow's book for this episode from Goodbye Anxiety to Goodbye Unhelpful Anxiety. And I decided to do this because I wanted to make it clear that anxiety is not something that we'll ever be able to eliminate entirely. But if we can view moments of anxiety as golden opportunities to practice tolerating distress and becoming more comfortable being uncomfortable, then we can start relating to anxiety differently, right? Instead of it being this interfering, dreadful, unhelpful, and frustrating experience, we can start seeing anxiety as useful and valuable in and of itself, even if challenging. And with that said, here's my conversation with Dr. Terry Bacow. I'm here today with Dr. Terry Bacow. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and thank you for being here. You were so kind and shared your forthcoming book with me, and I thought it was fantastic. And although it won't be released until December, I'm wondering if you might be able to tell our listeners a bit about your book, including who might benefit from it. Absolutely. So the book is called Goodbye Anxiety, a guided journal for overcoming worry. And it is geared towards teenagers and young adults, although I believe anyone can benefit, even their parents. Um, The book has tools for anxiety management. It's really about kind of what are some strategies for overcoming worry in particular, which is an aspect of anxiety. And the book has a journaling component. It has written prompts that 
leaders can, if they want to, respond to by writing out the feelings. But the idea being that it's really good to vent. It's really good to kind of get your worries out of your head and onto paper, rather than holding these feelings inside. Yeah. But in addition to the journaling component, there's plenty of skills. So I offer in the book concrete strategies that are based in cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, it's kind of alphabet soup. But I really try to make these skills accessible and relatable. So one of the other things that readers will find in the book are some pop culture references and some sort of concrete and fun examples. So I really try to teach anxiety management in a fun way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I found myself really just just enjoying. It was a pleasant read because uh, it is fun, you, the way you, you frame things and the examples you give. I thought it was great. Yeah. So I, I highly, when it is available, I highly encourage everyone listening to go get your book, especially if you've got a young teen or young adult in your life, or you are a young teen or young adult. Um, and, and so you talk about that, that right in, in your book, you've got kind of three parts to it. The first part is just identifying the worry, right? What you're worried about. The next part is putting those worries into words by journaling about them. And then mm -hmm. The third part, it's about learning skills and, and taking action to help you manage that anxiety um, so that you feel less overwhelmed by it. And in that third part of your book too, you talk about common themes that tend to pop up when we're feeling worried, uh, when we're feeling anxious. And I'm hoping that we can focus primarily on these today. And I wanna start by talking about uncertainty, which I've talked about on this show before, because uh, it comes up so often. It's something that tends to fuel anxiety. I'm wondering, you, you give some fantastic suggestions, some strategies for embracing uncertainty in your book. And I'm wondering if you can walk us through some of these now. Absolutely. So I wanted to just quickly comment that the reason I bring up uncertainty in the book is that people with anxiety really do not like it. Mm -hmm. We really feel threatened by it. And that's, um, I think, an important reason to try to embrace it. And one of the first um, suggestions I make is to try to be in the present moment. Mm -hmm. Uncertainty is a really future-based fear. What's going to happen? I don't yeah. know what's going to happen. And I explain in the book, we can't know what's going to happen. The future is TBD, we just can't know. So it's really helpful to be in the present moment, to use mindfulness to not think about the future, mm -hmm. but to stay in the moment. And this is a really good way to watch your anxiety disappear. If you could stop thinking about the future and stay in the present, then your concern about uncertainty would just dissipate. Yeah. So that's um, the first suggestion that I make. Another one that's related to embracing uncertainty is sort of an imagination exercise to really visualize and imagine being 100% okay with it, which is kind of a radical concept, you know. Um, I think even folks that aren't anxious aren't really wired about uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is that we assume it's a negative thing. But what if we could just be 100% okay with that. Like, I don't know what's going to happen and that's okay, it's fine. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's some of the self-talk that I encourage 
readers and my patients to engage in. And then the third suggestion I make has to do with examining or considering the benefits of mm. not knowing what the future holds. So instead of thinking of this as a negative thing, to think of it as positive. Understand that life is full of surprises. And if we know, if we anticipate every single thing that's going to happen, it would be really boring. It would be really tedious to know what kind of like that Groundhog Day thing of knowing exactly what's going to happen day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So I think it could be positive to just not know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Anything could happen. Yeah. So, so there's some beauty in that uncertainty. It keeps things novel and fun, right? If we can kind of try to view it with that lens. Yeah, that can be helpful. And I want to um, come back to this, this first point you mentioned uh, in terms of managing that or coping with uncertainty. You talked about staying in the present. And instead of like, you said, stop thinking about about the future. And I want to note here, I, I have a feeling what you're saying is, because we can't really always control what thoughts come up in our mind, right? Sometimes these thoughts might keep coming back and, and actually efforts to avoid thinking about a certain thought can often backfire and make that thought pop up more intensely. So I just want to clarify, I think what you're saying here is that we're better off if we can you know, let that thought continue to buzz around, right? To continue to be there that like, oh yeah, something terrible might happen tomorrow at that event, but then saying, you know what? Yep, that might happen and shifting our attention back onto the present moment. And each time that thought pops up, noticing it, yep, that could be the case, but I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna try to figure out how to prevent that from happening right now. I'm gonna focus on the thing I'm doing right here, right now. Totally. And psychologists call that diffusion. And that's something that I bring up in the book, kind of in a separate topic. But I think your comment reminds me that mindfulness can be difficult. It can be really difficult to be in the present moment. A lot of times we encourage people just be in the present. Oh, it's so easy. It's really it's really hard because our brains really are future focused. So one of the strategies to stay in the moment is to notice the thoughts without reacting them. And mm-hmm. also to observe and describe your surroundings, to kind of um, really try to kind of see what's in front of you. And that's a good strategy to stay in the present, but it takes a little bit of effort, I have to say. It's worth yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. It takes a lot of effort. And I think I've heard people to say that, you know, mindfulness is the act of losing your focus a hundred mm-hmm. times and then bringing it back to whatever you're trying to pay attention to in the present 101 times, right? So just knowing that you probably are gonna stray from, from that present moment, expecting that to happen, and then really trying to come back to that present moment activity or conversation or whatever it might be. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, and this ties to my next question, right? So one of the ways that we tend to respond to uncertainty is by trying to control our inner and outer worlds, right? What we're thinking or what other people are are doing or how they're gonna respond to us. But as you note in your book, these efforts to control things that are outside of our control often just make anxiety worse, which is why in your book, you suggest responding to these urges to control or over control with coping statements that can help us resist acting on these urges. 
And I'm wondering if you can give some examples of things that we might try saying to ourselves when feeling pulled to control more than we really can control, or when we're feeling the need to try to control in ways that maybe aren't serving us so well. I'm so glad you brought that up because coping statements are a really big feature of the book. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take a quick second to explain what they are. So in CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, we put a lot of emphasis on self-talk. And I think that's helpful of a coping statement or the, the kind of bite-sized statements that we can say to ourselves that are cheerleading, that um, that are cheerleading without being overly positive. Mm -hmm. Now, the goal isn't necessarily to be positive or toxically positive, but to be encouraging, to kind of yeah. say something to ourselves to just bring reality back into the situation. So I think um, that's why so many coping statements appear throughout the book. And I do offer examples and give readers a chance to come up with their own. But to give you some examples of how some um, control-related coping statements, here are a few. So an example would be, worrying did not enable me to change the outcome of events. Worrying is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. You know, a short statement to just remind yourself, why worry? Mm -hmm. Another example would be, trying to control or over control elevates my stress, which is the last thing I want. Yeah. Again, a helpful reminder that over control actually worsens anxiety instead of reduces it. Mm -hmm. Another example would be, it is important to focus on what I can control. I would not waste time trying to control the uncontrollable. I could be a good person and a good friend. But that one, I'm encouraging folks to make the distinction between what they can and can't, really to really focus on what they do have power over. And then maybe a final example would be accepting my lack of control over events and other people can be liberated. Yeah, I love it. And, and what I like so much about these, these coping statements that you give is that they're not ones like you said, you're not trying to be overly positive. You're also not trying to reassure yourself that nothing terrible is gonna happen, right? That like, you're just saying, I don't have to go down this control path, right? I can let go of some of that control. I can do this. Even if it might feel hard, I can still do it. Those are great. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, all right. Um, and so sticking with this, this control theme for a minute, Another form of control that, that often gives rise to anxiety is perfectionism, which as you note in your book can show up in many different ways in our lives. And I'm hoping you can speak to this a bit and talk about why we might wanna consider aiming for good enough instead of perfect. Absolutely. So the point that you mentioned that Perfectionism affects us and affects so many areas of our lives is an important one. And I think the reason is that it's subtle. So when we think of perfectionism, we have this stereotype that it's about getting perfect scores or looking absolutely beautiful and having mm -hmm. you know, no um, blemishes. But I think that many of us are closeted perfectionists and the sense that perfectionism can be found at our expectation. And many of us, you know, might expect things to work out perfectly at the time, or we're really afraid of making mistakes. 
and any form of failure, or maybe we're seeking approval from every person, everyone, everyone can like us. So this could be a heavy burden. It could be, it could really drive up feelings of anxiety. So that's why I discussed the concept of good enough. And this is an important goal because, I'm, I'm sorry, perfection is impossible. <laughs> it's only existing the dictionary. It's yeah. unattainable. So people that chase perfect are going to be extremely frustrated. Yeah. So it's important to establish it's just not possible. And we might as well aim for good enough. Good enough is a much more realistic, attainable goal. And I also mentioned that, tol that tolerating imperfection doesn't mean that you're going to lower your standards. It doesn't mean that you're going to kind of give up. It just means that you're going to modify your standards and bring them to a more realistic place. And an example that I actually give in the book, um, which some people might appreciate, is TikTok dances. So there's a lot of dances on TikTok where you have to follow these elaborate steps. Mm -hmm. And they're really popular. And I don't know how many people are really putting this pressure on themselves, but I encourage readers to understand that you're not going to do these dances perfectly, to really aim for good enough. Mm -hmm. That's a, really the better way they will touch it. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of energy you expend trying to achieve this unachievable thing, right? And, and again, when you fail at that, that's going to leave you feeling leave leave you feeling inadequate and probably more anxious. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, so so we we talked we've talked a lot about control and how efforts to over control often backfire and make anxiety worse. But when feeling overwhelmed, planning ahead, which if you think about it is really actually a form of control, that can be really helpful. And so I'd love it if you could talk a bit about how planning ahead without over planning can help us when we are feeling overwhelmed. Absolutely. So planning ahead is a form of coping ahead, which is really being prepared. When we get overwhelmed, we tend to panic and a task seems insurmountable in our minds. Whereas planning ahead is a form of problem solving, mm. which is effectively a way to curtail rumination. So a lot of times when we're worried about something, we ruminate, we think about all the scenarios, all the contingencies, and this could be really interfering. Whereas problem solving or making a plan um, enables you to break the cycle of obsessive worry. Mm -hmm. So what I encourage people to do is to ask yourself, what could I do in this situation? You could either actually make a plan to tackle it or visualize yourself doing it. So one example I give would be an academic one. Like if you um, do poorly on a test and you make a plan to speak to the professor or to your boss or to, uh, to your teacher, that would be a form of planning ahead. Mm -hmm. It's a form of problem solving. It's asking yourself, what could I do in this situation? So when you feel overwhelmed, making a plan, it's really reassuring, it's really comforting. Mm -hmm. And it gives you peace of mind and a plan, a plan of attack, which is a good way to approach something that's worrying you. And I think that this kind of strategy of planning ahead without overdoing it and overthinking it can stop anxiety in its track. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so, so I, I found that to be the case too, right? And for me, sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed by thinking about all the, the, the you know, the patients I have to see, or I, I get to see and all the, the podcast interviews I'm doing or editing for podcasts, I'm doing the writing, I'm doing all these things. And then also all the laundry and the household, you know, other chores. Sometimes I can, it just feels really overwhelming. And if I can just take a minute to say, you know what, I'm going to start this, then I'm going to do that. And I might not get it all done. And I'm going to, I'm going to do my best anyway. Just even just that act of being like, okay, this is what's going to come first. That can actually help to reduce my anxiety a, a little bit there. That sounds fantastic. And I talk a lot in my work with my patients about breaking things down, mm-hmm. breaking things down to smaller steps smaller component. If you feel overwhelmed, it needs to be broken down. Yeah. If you still feel overwhelmed, it needs to be broken down further. And this speaks to task initiation and procrastination. A lot of folks think that procrastination is a lazy issue. We're lazy, mm-hmm. we procrastinate. When it's really an anxiety issue in the sense mm-hmm. that we put things off that make us anxious. Yeah. So sometimes we just need an icebreaker. We need to make a plan. I'm going to write a couple of sentences. I'm going to run this one errand, one thing at a time, yeah. one step at a time. And that kind of planning is really effective. Yeah, breaking things down into smaller parts or chunking, I think, as you refer to it in your book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. And okay, so then, so now we move on now because sometimes, you know, we, we find ourselves feeling anxious or overwhelmed by circumstances that are just objectively hard or that seem wrong or unfair, right? That like anyone would find themselves feeling anxious or and overwhelmed by, right? And when faced with this kind of adversity, like living in a global pandemic, it can be tempting to focus on how miserable we feel and on how much we just wanna escape or undo the current state of affairs. But as you know in your writing, rejecting reality in this way, it's exhausting and it can lead us to feel even more anxious. And and this is where you talk about acceptance, where this, you know, an accepting stance comes into play. Can you you speak to this a bit about what acceptance entails and how it can help reduce our suffering when we are faced with adversity? Yes. Acceptance is a really big tool in anxiety, something that comes up quite a bit. And the word is different, I think, than the concepts. Like when we think of acceptance, we think of maybe just giving up and accepting, but it's in fact making an empowered choice to peacefully accept rather than to fight against a painful Mm. situation. It's really best for circumstances when truly not much of anything can be done about a particularly unfair circumstance that, like the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, Acceptance means that even though we may actively despise what's happening, we can acknowledge that it is in fact happening and that it is not great. Acceptance doesn't mean approval. It simply is a way to reduce the suffering and immense frustration that comes from trying to change a situation that cannot be changed. Mm-hmm. The key thing to remember is that the pain of life is unavoidable, but suffering, meaning dwelling, rejecting reality, literally complaining, is optional. So, since this could be abstract, I try to explain how to practice acceptance. 
and this involved a powerful perspective shift. Acceptance is understanding that something sucks and there isn't much you could do about it. And that's okay. Once you have reduced the noise that comes from the agony of focusing on how much you hate a given circumstance, you can better use your energy and getting through it, especially if the situation brings you anxiety. Mm. You could try telling yourself, this situation massively sucks, but focusing on how much I hate it makes me feel worse. Mm-hmm. Rejecting reality does not change reality. Acceptance doesn't mean approval. And accepting something will free my mental space for effective coping. Yeah, yeah. Those are great, uh, you know, other, other great examples of the coping statements, how you might be able to use those to help navigate things that are really hard, right? To help you be able to take that more accepting stance. I love those. And I think what you pointed out is so key that there's, I think it's Carl Jung who has that famous quote that what you resist persists. And so the more you try to fight reality, fight what's happening, fight the anxiety you're feeling when it's something that's really out of our control that's happening anyway, the more distressed are going to feel, right? Because that thing's going to continue happening. If we can instead accept it first, that that maybe can offer a window into thinking about like, well, how, if at all, might it be able to change us? And if not, just allow, it maybe can take some of that suffering away and just allow you to feel the pain that might be there without all that additional suffering. Absolutely. And I think it's helpful to point out that this is difficult. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the lockdown phase of pandemic oh, yeah. when I was um, really in my house for four months with my kids and doing the, my school with them and doing my work and not really resting or um, really experiencing this unrelenting stress. Like I found mm-hmm. that really difficult and I truly hated it. So it was um, a challenge to practice acceptance. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole point is that it's challenging, that practicing acceptance it's challenging, but it's meant to reduce your suffering. It's meant to make your life easier. It's meant to remove the burden of spending all the time fighting against reality when it just can't be changed and it yeah. is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of playing with the, the hand that you're dealt rather than trying to, you know, trying to change that when, when you can't, yeah. For sure. And actually, so this, I, I want to stay here for a minute um, and talk more about acceptance, or I guess actually more correctly, a lack of acceptance, because this comes into play a lot when we compare ourselves to others, as so many of us often do. And as you note in your book, when we make downward comparisons, right, when we compare ourselves to someone who is maybe, who we think we see as excelling or or doing better than us in some way, these types of comparisons usually leave us feeling pretty inadequate and anxious. And, and so instead of accepting ourselves as we are and, you know, kind of playing our hand or, or the genetics we've been dealt as skillfully as possible, we zoom in on all of our shortcomings and wish we could be someone we're not. So I'm wondering what advice you have for listeners who want to move away from making these unhelpful comparisons and, and move into that more accepting place of themselves. Yes, you know, social comparison is such a pervasive phenomenon these days. I think we've been doing this since the beginning of time, but I think with social media, other things becoming more visual, the mm-hmm. social comparison has really exploded and it's 
causing um, loads of massive social anxiety and affecting your self-esteem and affecting your mood. So I think that it's helpful to find strategies to deal with this social comparison. I think that this is where CBT can be useful in the sense of kind of checking the facts. When you are comparing yourself to someone that you idealize, it is practically guaranteed that you do not have other facts. You're not seeing this person mm -hmm. on a bad day and the most of a stressful time or during an ordinary moment where basically nothing is happening. Such moments make up the majority of life and they are definitely not being presented. So in this book, I share a few pieces of advice. The first is to try to resist comparing yourself to others. It ruins your happiness. Comparison mm -hmm. really is the thief of joy. So if you could just try not to do it at all, it's hard. But it's a really good idea. You know, I have um, a saying that the grass on the other side of the fence <laughs> is fake. So we're making <laughs> these assumptions about other people, which I'm going to talk a little more about in a second. So first, try to be just comparing yourself to others. Second, try to focus on yourself. You were doing great. What is great about you? List mm -hmm. all of your strengths. Don't focus so much on your weaknesses. I also recommend taking a mini social media break. Try to limit excessive scrolling. Perhaps give yourself a reasonable time limit. You could tell that you've hit a point of burnout or oversaturation with the scrolling when you start to feel upset or badly about yourself. At this moment, it is time to walk away and do something else, even for a few minutes. Take a breath. Remember that no one's life is perfect. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, it is so important to remind yourself when you compare yourself to other people that you don't have the whole story. For yeah. example, if you see a vacation photo on Instagram that's gorgeous, that someone seeming to have the time of their lives, it's important to remember that this photo may seem gorgeous, but people are not posting the lost luggage, the food poisoning, yeah. or the plane that was delayed for six hours. So do not make assumptions. That's my last piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, so helpful. And so I think here, right, this is where that mindfulness can come into play, right? Being attending to the present moment, attending, you know, thinking about like the things that you've got going for you. So when you notice that, oh, right, I'm, I'm kind of shifting into comparison mode, noticing that and kind of pause and saying, oh, I just don't want to keep going there, right? Like, sure, maybe they're doing better than me in this way. I'm not going to dwell on that right now. Instead, I'm going to focus on what I'm doing right now. I'm going to remind, you know, think about like all the things that I just did today that I feel proud of, whatever it might be there. But yeah, it's so, so helpful. Um, and so then this actually also ties into this drive for, for being perfect that oftentimes we have, right? And coming back to this perfectionism that we've talked about, um, one of like the, the flip side of this, right, is failing or making mistakes. And this can often cause a lot of anxiety, even for those of us who aren't perfectionists, right? Um, that it can lead us to lead, to live overly cautious lives in an effort to reduce the chances that will fall flat on our faces, right? So even if we're not perfectionists, we still might feel the need to avoid mistakes, to avoid the possibility of failure. But as you note in your book, if we can try on a different lens and see failure and mistakes, as wonderful teachers, that can be game-changing 
And I'm wondering though, if you can speak more to this, why is it that making mistakes, that feeling maybe might not be the terrible thing we oftentimes frame, frame those things to be? Absolutely. So first of all, I think that failure and mistakes have a terrible reputation. So many people I work with are terrified or quick to say that they have failed something or failures or that making a mistake would be catastrophic. Mm. So I hear this a lot, I do. And this is a shame because failure, in my point of view, is a construct. And we use this word construct a lot. This means that even though it's certainly possible to fail things like a test, Mm -hmm. The vast majority of the time when we say we are failures, we aren't really, we're using this word very dramatically. In reality, failure is a low probability event, Mm -hmm. which is one reason we should stop being so scared of it. It's really quite unlikely. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, not only are mistakes completely unavoidable, similar to, you know, um, imperfection, Mistakes are awesome. So this is where maybe the <laughs> radical part comes in. Mistakes do not feel good in the moment and we often flagellate ourselves. And this is too bad because what mistakes do for us is they strengthen the connection in the brain associated with learning. Yeah. Mistakes are effectively how we figure life out. Mm-hmm. And there's so much learning. That's why I use the term wonderful teachers we get invaluable information from them that we could then put into action later in our lives. So, so much energy is spent trying to avoid mistakes and we're so hard on ourselves when we make them. But what if we make the radical choice to do mistakes? It's not a big deal, it's even a good thing. We would be so much less anxious. Yeah, yeah. So when we make mistakes, we learn, okay, Maybe I next time before the next talk I give or something that I'm going to prep a little bit more here ahead of time, right? So that that can be useful in and of itself. But I think also we both treat social anxiety and in, in social anxiety, we have this idea of social mishaps where you purposely ask someone to do something that's going to basically guarantee that their feared outcome is going to happen, right? So if someone's afraid of looking stupid, well, then we might stand in front of, you know, under the sign for a store like Barnes and Noble and ask everyone who passes by, excuse me, could you tell me where the Barnes and Noble is, right? (laughs) Doing something that's so, that kind of makes you maybe look a little silly or even again, stupid, quote unquote, right? So we, we purposely plan for those mistakes. We do things to bring that to make sure that that feared outcome will happen because part of that when we make mistakes when we fail we also learn hey we can tolerate that it's going to feel awful right it's going to feel really uncomfortable we're going to feel really anxious and we can tolerate that and when we learn that we can tolerate that discomfort that's going to come if we make a mistake well then the possibility of making a mistake doesn't loom as large right it's not as scary anymore because we're like oh been there done that i survived Yes, I mean, that's how exposure therapy works. And it's mm-hmm. so funny you mentioned that, but I was a graduate school, I was in Boston at Boston University, and we would routinely ask patients, um, so BU is located um, near Fenway Park, and we would have folks go out on the street mm-hmm. near Fenway and say, excuse me, do you know where Fenway Park is? Mm-hmm. So it just reminded me of that. Yeah. But I definitely think decatastrophizing mistakes is so important. Decatastrophizing and embracing them. I'm welcoming them. 
the unavoidable, they're going to happen. If you lighted it yourself, you're forgetting that you didn't know at the time you didn't have the information, and now you do. And so a mistake is an opportunity to do something else and to improve. And I think that's really part of that. And I think that exposures really show people you've done this thing and it wasn't so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're able to tolerate it. Yeah, all right. And and I guess I will, I'll just add to that too, right? That like, that sometimes you might do an exposure or you might do something that you're, you might fail in some way and it might actually be pretty terrible, pretty horrible, right? And again, learning, we can tolerate that even when that's the case, right? I think that's, that's kind of the secret sauce there, um, underlying exposure therapy, what makes it so powerful, so effective. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, I want to ask now for those of us who, you know, do, we do have this kind of fear of making mistakes. We want to be as perfect as possible, as successful as possible. Oftentimes we also have this inner critic that, that kind of comes along for the ride that, you know, is all kind of constantly berating us saying, ah, oh, you should be doing this better. You could do that better. Or look at him. He's doing so much better than you here. Right. And so I'm wondering for those of us who n- notice that our anxiety is really closely tied to that inner critic, when it's really loud, we tend to feel really much more anxious. Um, what advice would you give uh, for for navigating those moments? Totally. I think first it's helpful to visualize your inner critic, to just imagine that you have this inner critic in your brain who's giving to you a bad review. The inner critic could be any gender. It's giving to you two and a half stars and giving you more dislikes than likes. And that could feel really awful. It could feel really awful. But we forget anyone with the internet can write a bad review. <laughs> So how do we deal with this inner critic? And um, I think that quite often we feel anxious because we feel we've screwed up or we're gonna do something wrong or we're really critical of ourselves. Self-criticism is almost a default. This is unfortunate because criticism doesn't work. It does not motivate us actually to change our behavior. It just makes us feel badly about ourselves, addresses the that. So in contrast, and I talk about this in the book, there is a concept called self-compassion in which instead of being critical of yourself, you are very understanding of yourself. Research shows that self-compassion is far more effective in motivating us than criticism. Self-compassion, for example, releases or um, causes the body to release endorphins, which are the same chemicals we get when we exercise and do things that are really enjoyable. Research, um, the research that I'm talking to, by the way, comes from the psychologist, Kristen Neff, mm-hmm. shows that self-compassionate people are more self-confident, more resilient, more likely to persist and try again when failure occurs, and overall are better able to cope with life. So obviously self-compassion sounds really great. And the goal here is to replace your inner critic with an inner coach and to use soothing self-talk such as, it is okay, everyone makes mistakes, this is not a big deal. That's an example of self-compassionate self-talk. It could also be helpful 
one practicing self-compassion to understand that most situations aren't your fault and are really more related to the circumstances at hand. Mm -hmm. Think of what you would tell a friend in the same situation and say this to yourself. It may feel weird or indulgent, but self-compassion is a strategic coping strategy for anxiety. I myself find it incredibly useful. And I would also say the part of self-compassion is recognizing that you're not alone, that every single one of us struggles. You know, when we feel anxious, we feel really alone. I'm the only one having this problem. I'm the only one with anxiety. A part of self-compassion of practice is to remember everyone suffers, everyone struggles. I'm not the only one who is struggling right now. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I, I think for me, uh, one of the things that I really value is being a loving, compassionate, patient, empathetic parent, right? Like that is one of the most important things to me. And I really try to like, I try my best to validate my kids' feelings, to let them feel whatever they need to feel. I, I you know, block or stop um, dangerous or, you know, harmful behavior, destructive behavior, but like I try to honor the feeling underlying that. And I'm not always able to do that in moments when I, you know, it's 6am when they come in my room and I'm still really tired and half asleep. Like I just may not be able to show up as my best, most loving self. Right. And in those moments, I think when I do criticize myself and I'm like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm failing here or something like that. I find myself feeling anxious. And then the thought of like parenting for the rest of the day seems overwhelming. And I, I, find, I just keep struggling throughout the day. And when I'm able instead in those moments when I'm not being the parent I want to be to kind of take a moment and pause and note that like, this is hard, right? They're struggling right now. If they're fighting with each other, my kids are fighting with each other. They're struggling right now. And I'm struggling right now. And I can, we can, we can get through this, right? I can be here. This might be hard. And we're gonna, I'm gonna ride this wave. If I can view it in that way, instead of like, oh, how could I come back here again? How could I, uh, you know, stray from this respectful parenting path that I try to follow? Oh my gosh, it's so much easier to get back on track, right? Uh, you know, just so much easier. I think that self-compassion is really important when it comes to parenting in particular. And in fact, Dr. Duff wrote a book with the example of have a concern, have a tantrum on the plane, and just really just having to take a moment to self-soothe. And you know, I think so many of us resist self-compassion self because we think it's, we're kind of letting ourselves have to help. And it's so the opposite, it's the opposite. Self-compassion allows us to try harder and to do better. A part of that is to understand that this is difficult, whether um, you're in college or you're in the parenting phase or you're in high school at any stage of life, you're going through a lot of hard stuff. Yeah. And it's so important to recognize this is difficult. This is difficult for everyone. And to be kind to yourself and to say kind things which is so much more effective than to say critical things, which we've been almost programmed to do. Yeah, for sure. So much more helpful to be kind. Yeah. All right, well, I'm wondering, um, if there is 
One last thing you'd like to offer our listeners about managing anxiety or about anxiety in general. What would that be? Hmm. I like, well, I think that anxiety is a deeply uncomfortable feeling. You know, it has emotional component, but it also has physical component. And the discomfort can be hard to bear. So a lot of, I think fundamentally what anxiety is and dealing with it is dealing with discomfort, which is really dealing with the idea that I am uncomfortable right now, or I might be uncomfortable. And to realize it's okay to be uncomfortable. Discomfort is a part of life. It can't be avoided. And we as humans are not strangers to discomfort. You know, we get up early on a daily basis. We go to work even when we don't want to. We experience pain and we get through it. We persist. So I guess maybe the next piece of advice would be surrounding this concept of discomfort and the idea that it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's temporary. It's not going to last forever. And to really think about what can you do? You know, what could I do to make myself a little bit more comfortable in this situation while also recognizing simultaneously discomfort is not catastrophic. It's not a crisis. Um, but, you know, I empathize with anxiety as an experience. It is hard. And that's why we need all the help we can get. And I hope that my book will be helpful to all of those out there struggling with anxiety, myself included. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I can say I found it helpful, right? Even as someone who I have a lot of experience navigating my own anxiety and also helping other people do so, I still, I really just, I enjoyed your book. I found it really useful. And I think what you just said is so important that a lot of, Anxiety management is about learning to become more comfortable being uncomfortable. And sometimes there's not anything we can do to make it more comfortable. Sometimes we just have to wade in that discomfort. But when we do so, that allows, it helps us build the muscle for tolerating that discomfort. And so in the grand scheme of things, it just makes it so much easier to ride those, those waves of discomfort when they show up. Yes, yes. And that's maybe where the coping statement could be a useful strategy, which is to have this self-compassion, this self-talk, where you say to yourself, this is rough, but I can handle it. Yeah, yeah, I've got this. I love it. Okay, well, I'm wondering for you know, listeners who'd like to find out more about you and your work, where, where can they go to learn more about you and to, to follow your work? Totally. So... Um, if folks are really motivated, you could go to my website, which is drterrybackend.com. And my website uh, is something I'm really proud of. And I offer a lot of information on it about my private practice, but also about the book, including resources for um, coping with anxiety. So my website would certainly be a place to learn more about my work. It also has examples of things that I've written, including blogs and other podcasts that have been on. And articles have written. So there's a lot of good information on my website. And then uh, certainly Instagram would be another place to find me. Mm-hmm. You can find me at Dr. Terry Backout. And um, I really try to make my Instagram fun and accessible and to include some concrete advice, including a lot of the concepts mentioned in the book, a lot of CBT and DBT and ACT. And I guess if people are even more motivated, you can learn 
about my book and the thing that we talked about today by purchasing the book. The book mm -hmm. could be purchased on Amazon and it's also going to be found in stores such as Target and Walmart and on the Penguin Random House website. Um, maybe even open up at us. I think that we're hoping this book could be a good gift to give to someone mm -hmm. who's struggling. And December is a good time. It's a good time with the holidays to think about who in your life has anxiety. And maybe buying the book for them as a gift or buying it for yourself as a gift, as a gift you give to yourself to really feel better. That's my main goal with um, being a psychologist is to try to help people and to try to help them with anxiety. Yeah, great. And, and so your book comes out in December. Is it available for pre-order now? It is. Thank you okay. for reminding me. It is available for pre-order. And it's a couple of months away, so I didn't necessarily want to talk about it too early because, you know, when you're waiting for a book, you want it to come immediately. But yeah. I would so appreciate pre-order. That would be fantastic. Okay, and then it's one less gift on your list of holiday shopping, right, to do, to, to have to look for down the road. You can get it now and just be done with it. Great. Okay. Well, this was so helpful, Terry. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. And I have a feeling our listeners also will find this so helpful. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alyssajared.com.